Praise the Lord, the video worked, the computer worked when it was kind of supposed to, right? Um, anyways, um, happy Easter again. You guys, it, um, it, it's just such a joy to be here. And the puppies are going to be here soon, so I know some of you are really excited about that, to be honest. I'm excited about that, um, and the egg hunt and all that, And um, but uh, so good to be here. You know, Easter is a... Uh, very um, kind of a pressure packed time for preachers and pastors, right? Because you have to give a sermon and everyone has kind of a higher expectation. It's Easter. We want something better than usual. Um, but then everyone knows the whole story. Like everyone knows, so there's nothing new. So they're like, I know the beginning and the end. And so don't mess it up. Just tell us the story. And But yet you want to be creative. But if it's a different story, it's heresy. You get in big trouble. And so you're trying to teach this story the Easter story that we all know the beginning and the ending too, hopefully. But it is a wonderful story. It is a story worth listening to again. And I want us to gather here today like a little child that asks her mom, can you tell me that story, that bedtime story again? A comfort story, a beautiful story. Uh, Like a person listening to their favorite song for the 500th time because it moves them every time they hear it. Um, like reading your favorite book over and over, watching your favorite movie again and again because it is so good. And really, this is a story that never gets old. It only gets better, I think, as we go into it. And today we go into the uh, Easter story here. And um, Titus, uh, the book of Titus, this small little letter, the last chapter that we read a section of, gives us... um, these three parts, um, the life before Christ, what life looked like before people knew Christ, right? It was in the past tense, and we read about that in verse 3. And then what God did in Christ for us, the loving kindness of Christ appeared, and then how it affects us after, the life after Christ. And even for us, we have all met people in our lives who have radically changed us. You know, a loved one, a spouse, a best friend, a counselor, that the moment we met them, our lives were never the same. But really here, there's the story of Jesus Christ and how our lives, billions of lives throughout history, have been changed radically because they have met him. So we're going to kind of go through those three parts. What was life before Christ like? In verse 3, it tells us this. It gives us a whole description. For we ourselves, and this is all in the past, were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. It's a a bleak picture. It's a disturbing picture. He says, this was life before Christ. Um, It's in the past. And Paul, when he writes this, wants the reader to understand that this is me and my people. We ourselves. Let me get this clear. It's us. I'm not talking about the bad people or the criminals or the heathens or the pagans. This was my past, the Apostle Paul says. This was my past. This was my life. And the way it's described are in these words, foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice. And envy, hated by others, hating one another. Uh, what, a, what a horrific picture of what life is like, was like. Uh, I want to highlight a couple of these things, right? It talks about that we were foolish. That means we didn't know better. 
We didn't know what was right or what was wrong. We didn't know what we ought to do. We were slaves, it says, to various passions and pleasures. It's interesting. Because if you think about the idea of a slave, you're only a slave if you are mastered by someone or something. And the slave's sole purpose is to live under the master's wishes. And he says, there is no freedom as a slave. And yet we, we get this all mixed up in our culture today. We think, boy, if I could live the hedonistic lifestyle, if I could just be this like that narcissistic person with X amount of likes and followers and et cetera, et cetera, isn't that really what life is? But here it says, no, you're a slave, you're not free. And this is how we used to live. Slaves to various passions and pleasures, right? Um, think about this, the passions, the lusts of our flesh. Uh, we're slaves to it. Think of all the ugly addictions that are out there. And you look at human beings and you say, gosh, how can they do this? Um, educated people, people who know better, people who know it is so bad and yet they run to those things and they cannot help themselves. Grown men and women, moms and dads, some grandparents, they're, they're addicted to their, the pleasures of their flesh. The second thing that's mentioned is, is these ideas of pleasure, right? That we are enslaved to this. You know, I remember back in the 80s, there was a TV show. And you remember back in the 80s when TV was like four channels, like two, four, you know, and then there was some that didn't come out that well. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and that, that, that was a TV show. And if you missed it, you missed it. Like it's gone forever, you know, in this world. You can never watch it again. So you would set your schedule, say 8.30, right? Miami Vice is coming on on Friday night. I have to watch that. Um, Don John said, I got to watch that. But there was one show that me and my family, we would watch. And it was a show called, and some of you remember, right? Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. We, it was our show. It was our family show. And it was on at a certain time every week. And then we'd all say, oh, uh, you know, hey, let's watch this. All right? Let's look at people who are living nothing like us and be jealous. Let's watch this together. So we watch it on our little TV in our little room. And there's a guy, the host is Robin Leach. And he's got a big, heavy, thick English accent that makes him sound more sophisticated than I'm sure he really is. And he's talking. You know, you got marble from Italy. Italy, not just regular marble, and chandeliers made of real crystals from somewhere, and the gold staircase, and he's describing these places, and 15 cars in this garage, and each car is worth X amount. And you watch that, and you turn that off, and then you look around in your house, and you say, this is horrible. You know, like, I was born to the wrong parents. And think about it, but that was, when I was in you know, junior high school or whatever, but that was only on 30 minutes a week. Now it is bombarding us 24-7. We have a bunch of non-rich and famous people trying to act like rich and famous people, trying to tell you how great their life is. And you go on any you know, Instagram account or social media and their lives are better than our lives and we look at it and we say, whoa, the pleasures that they have. And this is what we were enslaved to and now it is that much harder. That's that much more difficult. Because there's someone richer than you. There's someone hey, that, that's having better vacations than you. Their house is nicer than you. Their cars are better than yours. You know, uh, they're cuter than you. They're taller than you. They're more athletic. And they just keep showing it off. They keep telling you. And you say, boy, I need more. I need more. This is the past, though. right? Passing our days in malice and envy, it says. Passing our days is a term. It's kind of like the lifestyle that we live that we choose to live. How you pass the days. 
how you choose to use your days. And it says it's used in malice, which is another word for evil or bad, and then in envy. Uh, how close this is tied in with what I mentioned, that we are just envying each other. And what do we do with this? That we want what we have. Ravi Zacharias tells a story of a brother and a sister in elementary school. The brother in his room had a jar, and it was filled with marbles, beautiful marbles. And he collected it his whole life, and he had it in there. His sister in her room had another jar, but it was filled with jelly beans, beautiful jelly beans. And so he would always go by and see her jar of jelly beans, and he started thinking, boy, my marbles are useless. Like jelly beans, you could eat it. My marbles, you can't do anything with it. And so he makes a proposal to his younger sister, and he says, hey, how about I will give you the opportunity to have these beautiful marbles for your jelly beans? And she thinks about it and goes, my marbles are better than your jelly beans, but I'm being gracious. And, you know, as older siblings often are able to manipulate their younger ones. And so the younger sister thinks about it and goes, okay, I'll switch with you. So the brother and the sister, they both go into their rooms. They take a bag out and they empty the jars of the goods. And as he, as the brother, is emptying out the marbles, he puts his hand and he's touching the marbles. And these are precious, beautiful marbles. How can he give them all to his sister? So he takes a scoop of it out. She'll never know. And he hides it under his bed. And then he goes to his sister and he says, okay, here are the marbles. And she says, okay, here are the jelly beans. And they swap. And he dumps it into his jar. And he's looking at it. And he is so happy. He thinks he's got the better deal. That night, he goes to bed and this young boy can't sleep. And he's trying to go to sleep and he can't go to sleep. And the reason he can't go to sleep is this one question is haunting him. The question is, is, What if she took a handful of jelly beans out and has it in her bed? And he is now pondering that. The desire that we have of passing our days in envy, wanting more because someone else has it, always trying to compare ourselves, hated by others, hating one another. This is a life before Christ. This is the world that we live in. And you turn on the news and you see what life is really like. Doesn't matter what culture, doesn't matter how educated people are. This is how people act. This is the harsh world that we live in. This is the difficult world we're going to send our kids into the school systems one day. These beautiful babies. And one day we'll have that moment. You're going to start kindergarten. You're going into this kind of world. Right? Uh, what a difficult world this is. It is Malcolm Muggeridge who said so well that the depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality, but at the same time the most intellectually resisted fact. It is the most empirically verifiable reality, but at the same time the most intellectually resisted fact. As C.S. Lewis says it so well about our guilt and our sins. The problem is what do we do with our sins? And this is what he says. We have a strange illusion that mere time cancels sins. I have heard others, and I have heard myself recounting, a cru- recounting cruelties and falsehoods committed in boyhood as if there were no concern of the present speakers. And even with laughter, but mere time does nothing either to the fact or to the guilt of a sin. So what do we do? If this was our lives, uh, and what do we do if we were filled with envy and malice Living just for pleasure. How do I go before God? You know, one of the things that I, I was telling my daughter just yesterday, we're walking the dog, and I was saying, 
I said, you know, you got to be careful because so many houses have cameras now. I said, don't, you know, like you have to, we have to pick up the poo because someone is going to film you and they'll put you on YouTube. Pastor leaves poo on the ground. Dog poo, dog poo, right, on the ground. Let's get that clear. Not, um, and uh, how... Um, you know, and they're watching, so you have to be careful. And isn't that a, isn't that a fact that it, there's videos everywhere? So you you know they catch people stealing things and acting up, and um, you have to be careful. And really, when you think about, boy, God knows everything, and God is not surprised with us. God sees everything, and we go before God and we ask ourselves, what am I going to do? What am I going to do with my guilt? It's a there's a book called The Sunflower by Simon Wiesenthal. Simon Wiesenthal wrote this book in the 60s and he recounts a time and he is a Jewish Holocaust survivor. And the basic part of the story that he talks about is an encounter he has with a young SS soldier who is on his deathbed named Carl. Um, Simon Wiesenthal at the age of 33 had lost most of his friends and his mother and his relatives. And he was now locked up and he was doing work, uh, garbage duty outside of a makeshift German army hospital in Lemberg, Poland. As he's out there taking out the trash, uh, a Red Cross nurse approaches him, says, hey, excuse me, uh, sir, are you a Jew? And he says, yes, I am, Jew. I am a Jew. He says, I need you to come with me. And so she takes him into this makeshift hospital, and as they go through, they go into an area where really those who are very critical are. And there is a, a young soldier there who is bandaged from head to toe. And she says, he's only got a little bit to live. He's going to die soon. And he wanted to talk to a Jew. And so he goes and approaches this 21-year-old soldier who had killed many people. And this young soldier in his deathbed is pleading for forgiveness before he goes to his maker. And he asks him for forgiveness for the guilt that he has because he knows he's going to go meet his maker. And he says, would you forgive me? Would you forgive me? And the rest of the book in The Sunflower is him asking that question, what's the right thing to do? Would you have forgiven him? And he is unable to forgive him. And our question goes is that one day when we go before our maker, are we going to say, please forgive me? Will you forgive me? Can I make up for this? I've been trying to do good. Is that good enough? And the question is there. The answer is not within us, but it is outside of us. All humanistic uh, theories and philosophies of the day says, look within yourself. Find the good, the God within yourself. But Christianity says, no, there was someone outside of ourselves. Jesus Christ. And what does Christ do for us here? Uh, three parts in this, and I'm going to run through this pretty quickly. First of all is that God appeared to us, right? Uh, we see here in verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. You see a whole contrast here? God is described, Jesus Christ is described as goodness, loving kindness, Savior, Whereas we were described as filled with malice, hate, envy. And so it, it, Paul is trying to show us, you are nothing like God. You are nothing like the Lord Jesus Christ. He is completely different than you. And this is the type of Savior you need. You are not filled with any of this. Only He is filled with this. And so we see that He appeared to us in this way. The second thing is He appeared, and secondly is He saved us. Right? Um, Verse 5 says, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. 
by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. He saved us. Now let's think about this for a moment. If someone is saved by someone else, it implies one thing, that they are helpless. If you ever say to someone, oh, you saved my life, it meant you were helpless. You could not fix it on your own. And this is the picture we have. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Um, it's interesting here. This term is used, the washing of regeneration. And these are big words, big theological words that we see here, right? Washing of regeneration. Now, regeneration means to be born again. To be born again. Now, these babies who are up here, you know, they were, a lot of them were born recently. And there's all these new ones, right? Uh, the, the newest babies, just uh, six weeks old, I think, is maybe the youngest one who was up here. They're born again. And that story of being born again is mentioned in John chapter 3. Um, and I want to highlight this a little bit. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus who approaches Jesus in the cloak of the night. And he asks him questions. And Jesus tells him, you must be born again. And if you've ever read the Bible, you know that story. You must be born again, he tells him. Nicodemus by being in the leader, the ruler of the Jews in that special category that's described in John chapter 3, a Pharisee, we know a few things about him. Obviously a male, older, established, rich, uh, high morals, highly educated, um, highly respected by others. And basically, he is someone we would say, he has arrived. He's made it. And we would look at him and say, boy, you know, that is what I want my child to grow up to be like. And it is, it's interesting because Jesus tells him, you must be born again. He doesn't tell the adulterous woman. He doesn't tell the tax collector. He doesn't tell the soldier who's been uh, robbing people. No, he tells the upright, self-righteous, religious person who is educated, smart, has it all together. He says, you must be born again. And in the original language, it's in the plural. You all, all of you types. All of you who think you have it all put together, you think you're better than most, you must be born again. You cannot add anything. You cannot go take on a new hobby. You cannot go do some kind of philanthropy and think that God is accepting you more, that you are better. He says, no, no, you have to be born again. And when we are born, none of us, right? None of us choose our birth dates and uh, the place where we're born and the parents are born. To. None of us choose any of those things. It happens to us. It's a beginning that's new. You must be born again, he says. So God appears, he saves us, right? Uh, means he, he changes us and he makes us his heirs, it says. And this is an exciting part, right? In verse 7, so being justified by his grace, we become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, let me just pause. We, we could spend weeks on those last two, three verses and go over everything. And there's so much uh, uh, richness here. But we're skimming over it. But the idea here is that we have become heirs, it said. We might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Heirs. If you receive an inheritance, everything that was theirs goes to you. Right? And we have all of those things. What a wonderful. So this isn't not just you get to be a part of it. You are now an heir. You're named. Right? You are adopted into God's family. You are an heir. Now, uh, 
I have two daughters, right? And they live at my house ever since they were born and they don't pay rent. And, you know, it's, and there's, and you know, they'll say things like, you know, when their friends come over, you want to come over to my house. It's technically, it's not your house. <laughs> technically, it's not even my house. It's the bank's house, you know, for the next, you know, 20 some years. Um, and even then, it, it, but it's, it's, do you want to come over to my house? Oh, let's watch my TV, you know? Um, and there's that kind of, they don't say, and they've never said, and then all of a sudden, Dad, um, would it be okay if I sleep in that extra room over there? Can I use that room for a while? They, we don't, we've never had that conversation. They don't say, Dad, um, you know, I'm going to eat this food, but, you know, can I just write down how much it costs? I'll pay. We don't have, it's, what's, it's theirs, it's theirs, right? You know, except for my golf clubs. Like, don't touch my golf clubs. It's mine, right? Everything else you could use. Um, but ultimately, it's all theirs. And I wouldn't expect them to ask, can I, can I live in this room for the next couple more years? No, it's theirs. It's natural. And yet we often go to our God and we go to him like a stranger, like we are going to go bargain with him. We're like children that say, hey, can I pay rent to go to heaven? I've earned this. Here is my $10. Can I stay in eternity in the best place in the world? And he says, you can't afford to stay here with that. You can't come in here with this. You can't afford this. But this is all yours anyways. And this is what he has done for us. So what do we do in response? This is the life after Christ. Those who have accepted Christ. This is, he says, verse 8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. He says here, it's interesting. He says, he tells Titus, he tells the reader to insist on these doctrinal truths. The previous verses, the gospel message. Insist on the depravity of man, that you are made from the dirt and you rebelled against God. Insist on that truth. Insist on the loving kindness of God, the goodness of God, how he's different from us, yet he still loved us. Insist on the truths of the gospel. And when you get this, when that becomes your faith, now, this is where the good works come in. It is not a repayment, but it's an act, a lifestyle that we live. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Be careful. And the word careful here in the original language has the idea of being anxious over. You're thinking about it so much, you're anxious over it. And some of you, you know, the night before the test, you can't sleep because you're so anxious about it, right? And uh, uh, April, we have four weddings going on at Crossway. And some of the couples I talked to, they're so anxious that it's getting closer because all the plans are there and all the little details. But he says, the thing that you need to now be careful about is the good deeds and how you will live. It means this, that don't just let it happen when it happens. Don't just wait for your feelings to come about before you serve the Lord. You decide, well, in my 20s, I have this kind of energy and freedom. And in my 30s, boy, I have a little bit more of this. And in my 40s, I might be able to make a little bit more money or whatnot and give a little bit. And God willing, I have kids, I could raise them. And in my 50s, I could impact someone who is a little bit younger. And in my 60s, I could impact those who are now in retirement to think that retirement is not the goal in the Christian life. And don't just let it happen. You are careful with good works. Devote yourselves to good works. And when we hear the word devotion, we hear things like of people who are devoted to their career, 
devoted to, you know, CrossFit, right? And, and, and they, you know, you got to put the picture up of doing the pull-up, right? And it, because you're devoted. Or you see a mom, she's a devoted mom, a devoted dad. The thing that God tells us in Christ that we ought to do after is be devoted to good works. Don't make this love OC thing just a once a year kind of thing. Don't make doing what is good a once in a while thing. Don't make serving at church just um, whenever I feel like it till I don't feel like it type of thing. I serve and I give in this way. This is what attracts people to the Lord. There's a story of a firefighter that came out just a couple weeks ago. On February 22nd, uh, in the small town of Clinton Township, Michigan, there was a firefighter named Ryan McEwen, 35-year-old, recently married with a little baby of his own. As you would imagine, a firefighter and a lot of our policemen, all of you, encounter all sorts of unexpected things. Well, he, he gets a call and he goes to a house. There's a mother there with an 18-year-old son. And the 18-year-old son is on a respirator that helps him to breathe. And without it, he would, he would die. He can't breathe. They were not able to pay their electric bill. So the electric company turned off their electricity. They weren't supposed to, but they did. And now they had an emergency battery, and it was running out, and there was only now a certain amount of time left, and to say, what are we going to do? So she freaked out and called 911, I need your help. And this firefighter comes in, and he sees what is happening. And he says, how much do you owe? And the amount that they owed was... Um, $1,023.76, and he goes and he pays for that full amount right away. It was only his boss, the captain, that insisted, let me get this out on the press so people could help these people. It wasn't his intention to be a public hero, um, to have his name out, but he does this. Obviously, um, the boy who is in bed, who could barely speak, whispers that, you, you know, you're my hero. This is the beauty of good works. Nicodemus, who was sneaking to Jesus at night, is only mentioned again in John uh, two more times. And he's mentioned again in John 19. In John 19, Jesus had just died. And Nicodemus comes publicly and he takes with Joseph of Arimathea, a disciple of Jesus. They go together, the Bible says. They take down the, the dead body of Christ. And he brings something to 75 to 100 pounds of myrrh and aloe and all these things. 100 pounds of it. Not a little jar, but 100 pounds, jars of it. And he brings it and he bombs the body of Christ and he does the good work. And this was a job, a duty that only the lowly would do. It was set aside in those days for maybe just the women to do. And it was something that a religious person, a Pharisee like him, if he ever even touched a corpse, he'd be considered unclean. He would avoid it because he was so clean, they thought. But he goes and he carries the body of the Savior, Jesus Christ. His life is filled and changed forever. He is born again. And I want to share that good news with you. You don't have to go to heaven and say, God, can I go into your house? I have, this is my amount of good works. Is this good enough? Is this worth an eternity's worth to go back into your house? He said, don't bring this here. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Become one of my heirs. And this is given to you for free. It is a gift. Take care of the problem of sin and guilt and live a life of freedom as we give our lives to good works in him.
And I want to challenge you with that thought this Easter. Let the loving kindness of our Lord Jesus Christ change you forever. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news. We accept this good news. We insist on the good news at the church. We want people, Lord, to hear the good news of the gospel regularly so that out of gratitude we will go and be men and women of good deeds, giving thanks to you, for we are free in you. So we thank you. Thank you, God, for loving us this way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to have a